So you say this is human Your heartbeat versus mine I'm in chains cause I'm choosing Showing love for living life I shouldn't have to leave where I stand I shouldn't have to change who I am To count as a human With your hand on my heart, you know it beats just as hard as yours. Feel my pulse. Oh, feel my pulse. Can't you see that I'm scarred? I'm just the same as you are, so just feel my pulse. Oh, I'm Fraser Mia, and you're listening to Going Gay, A Beginner's Guide. I've been working on this episode for a while because I knew it was important to mark the one-year memorial of the worst attack on the LGBTQ plus community in history. I'm not going to be focusing on the events of that evening as I think the details have been gone over enough times and I'm not interested in turning horror into some kind of spectator sport. What I am interested in is checking in on how the community on Orlando is recovering, what has happened to it over the past year, and the ways it's changed. Also, what steps are being taken now to ensure something like this never happens again. Dr. David Baker Hargrove is a world-leading trauma psychotherapist and the president and CEO of the only organization in Orlando offering free mental health services to the LGBTQ community. He has almost single-handedly helped the community recover from the shock and trauma of the shooting that night. Then I speak to Hannah Willard, the Public Policy Director of Equality Florida. She is responsible for the entire legislative agenda of that organization at both the state and federal level. She has led the movement to turn the tragedy of that night into real future change. Finally, we'll finish the episode with a remembrance of those 49 lives that were lost. This will be a tough one, but I think it's important we all take time to remember what happened that night and reflect on what we each can do to protect, love and cherish one another, regardless of who we are or who we love. My first guest today is Dr. David Baker Hargrove. Dr. David is the president and CEO of Two Spirit Health Services. He has over 21 years of experience as a community organiser and leader dedicated to the mental well-being of the LGBTQ plus community. David is recognised throughout the world as an expert on mental health issues as they relate to gender identity and speaks regularly at national and international conferences regarding the treatment of gender dysphoria. In 2001, he provided mental health support to the Fire Department of New York and the New York Police Department at World Trade Center Ground Zero following the September 11th terrorist attacks. He has been instrumental in the trauma counseling of those affected by the Pulse shooting one year ago. His continuing work through his organization and the Help Is Still Out There campaign acts as a resource for those affected by that night and who still have lives to rebuild long after the television cameras have gone. It's a real honour and a pleasure to have him on to discuss these absolutely vital issues, and I really hope you enjoy listening to him. Okay, uh, David, thank you so much for coming on. Um, Before we really jump into the main substance of the conversation today, I just want to ask you how you're doing. I know it must be 
a crazy busy time for you. Um, there's so many events going on to mark the one year memorial. Have you had just a moment to sort of stop and take in how you're feeling after this, this what I'm imagining is quite a hectic year? Well, so about four weeks ago, I started therapy. <laughs> okay. so, um, I had put it off for, you know, most of the last year and I kept doing like a self check-in. I'm like, are you crazy? Are you crazy? No, I'm not crazy. I don't think I'm crazy. Um, but it really got to the point where uh, I, I, I felt like that I really, there has been a lot of stress over the last year, um, you know, for so for mostly for me because I'm not on the front line in terms of patient care. I'm I'm running an organization um, where my staff is you know focused and dedicated to patient care. So for me, a lot of it is just uh, you know the organizational stress of trying to keep everybody motivated and focused and and healthy and going, and um, plus the fact that we were a small. Um, a small organization um, that had really only been in op- we'd only started uh, services in August of 2015, so we hadn't even been open a year yet when the pulse shooting happened. Yeah, um, and so as a result, we have had we had had this meteoric rise in um, awareness um, over the last you know 12 months, and so our, you know we were a small staff of seven people. And now we're a staff of 21. And um, so we've gone kind of from this little startup entrepreneur agency to, you know, like a growth stage agency. And, um, and you know, and just the, just the dynamics of trying to manage that as the leader have been enormous. So plus the fact that this is my community. I mean, I live in this community. I mean, I, I've worked in it for over 20 years. Um, and it just, you know, and, and I and I feel affected by it personally too. It, it, you know, is something that it's, you know, the LGBTQ community in Orlando is near and dear to my heart. It's my home. It's been my home for such a long time. So, you know, a lot of layers of stress going on, and um, and I just finally realized about a month ago. I'm like, dude, you need to go to therapy. Yeah. <laughs> and so you keep talking to everybody else about, you know, help is still out there. Please get help if you need it. You need to uh, turn that mirror around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, David, what springs out of that for me is the, immediately the question of your. You talked about your growth of your organization from a staff of seven to a staff of twenty-one. Is that all in the wake of this terrible attack? Has your de- the demand on your organization come because of this horrific attack on the people of Orlando and the people in your community? Yes, I mean we would not be. If, if that had not happened, we would not be that, you know, we wouldn't have grown to that size in the, in the last year. And um, because it's chiefly because of the fact that there isn't really an organization other than us in Orlando that's positioned to provide the services we provide. Um, you know, we are an LGBT specific health center, um, which is nonprofit. And we're, um, you know, the way we do things in the U.S., not everybody gets health care. So, um, you know, a lot of nonprofit agencies have to kind of take the, the have to shoulder the burden for people who are uninsured. And, um, and that's what we do. So um, we, we, you know, our doors are open to everyone, regardless of whether they have insurance or not. And, um, 
And so there is no other agency in, in the Central Florida area who does what we do. And so um, the burden has really been on us. Um, not that that's a bad thing. I use the word burden. I don't I mean to sound complaining, but the responsibility, I yeah. guess is a better word, has has you know fallen on us to be able to manage the healing and the recovery for our community. And we are so, I mean, I think to myself, you know, I've thought to myself a million times over the year, what would have happened had we not opened our doors? Pivoting off of that, I guess the question I think most people are going to want to know the answer to is how is everyone that you know that's been affected by the, sh- the shooting, how are they holding up? Obviously, it, you, the community was rocked to its core that night. There's been an enormous increase in demand for your services, particularly in regards to um, trauma counselling and probably mental health assistance. How is, how is the community holding up a year later? Well, I, I think collectively... You know, we're very dedicated to remaining strong and we're very dedicated to, you know, continuing to make sure that we do the right thing and that we are um, being present for those in our community who are hurting. Um, But, you know, I think some of the good that has come out of this, Frazier, is that, um, you know, within our LGBTQ community, there were, you know, there's there's within group discrimination you know, that occurs. And that's very normal if you, you know, read psychology or study that, you know, with when you're talking about marginalized groups, there's always within group discrimination. So, you know, you would have, you know, our, you know, the, the G's and the L's not really getting along, understanding yeah. each other and the T's. And then, and really, I mean, and most, most importantly, um, and for this conversation, you know, our LGBTQ community of color, yeah, you know, um, African American and Hispanic people. And so, that's really kind of we've we've had to really take the response leaders and, and organizations um, in this community. We've really had to uh, really look at pulling back that cover of saying, you know, we haven't done um, a good job at as we could have in the past at creating a space at the table uh, um, for our LGBT brothers and sisters who are, you know, black or Hispanic. Mm. And, um, and this has really kind of brought all of that to the forefront where the need for having more inclusive voices has become much, you know, um, much more on our awareness and, and something that we've uh, really dedicated ourselves to. So if there's, you know, if there's something good that could have happened out of this, it's that, that I feel like we have worked harder to, to overcome, some of the, you know, the the lack of understanding barriers amongst the letters, yeah. and um, and really try to embrace, you know, the the otherness um, of people in our community, and um, I think that's a good thing. Um, that's you know, I'm really proud of that. It sounds like the communities managed to take out of what was such a tragedy, and which I think ought to be discussed as a tragedy against, or you know, an attack against not just the LGBTQ community, but as you say, the LGBT community of color in Orlando. And I think that's something that certainly, in its portrayal, and it's been portrayed a lot of ways um, over the past year, it's, it's somehow lacking that sort of characterization of this attack in those terms. I guess initially, it must have felt like the you know, golly, your community was under attack. How have you as leaders been able to process your own shock and get to a point where you're ready to have those conversations to bring people along? Did it take a matter of months? Did it take a matter of weeks or hours? I mean, I remember pictures um, showing lines of people standing, lining up to donate blood at the blood banks the very next day after it happened, that very morning. 
Um, so it felt like the community was already activated to respond to this tragedy. How did it feel as like a leader in the mental health sector, especially to have to kind of just activate in that way? Well, I, you know, I, I'm pretty compartmentalized. I go into, I go into mode. I mean, that's kind of how I, I, I deal with things that are, you know, when I'm faced with a crisis, I go into, um, operational mode. And, um, so I, you know, I very compartmentalize my emotions and, and I, I just feel like probably as just as a therapist, I've just been trained to do that. I, you know, I don't react emotionally when I have people around me who are, (laughs) otherwise I'm a big hot mess. (laughs) You know, if it's just, if it's just me alone with my emotions then I'm a big hot mess, but I, you know, when I have other people around me who are reacting emotionally, I'm very much that person who is, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be thinking about what do we need to do? How do we need to do it? What's the action plan? Mm -hmm. And how do I direct people in a way that they can feel, okay, okay. You know, somebody's got this. And so that was really the mode I was in, um, from the moment I, I woke up, um, on Sunday morning and, um, continue to be that way for, you know, quite some time. Of course, over time, you know, within, you know, we got into July and August, things became less hectic. Mm -hmm. Um, but um, I think that I've still stayed really compartmentalized a lot throughout the last year. I, um, you know, I haven't, I mean, if I, I, I still feel like intellectually connected to everything that's been going on and the work that I'm doing. But I, I know that there's still kind of a disconnect for me too emotionally because I have to still kind of be strong and, and um you know, and do the job that I am, that the community expects and needs for me, I guess, is the best way to put it. Of course, of course. I, I suppose another thing that kind of springboards out of this really is how do you, how do you, you've been a mental health professional and a counsellor for decades, and you've worked on some incredibly traumatising events, such as the September 11th terrorist attack in New York. Uh, so how, did, how does what happened at Pulse change your perspective on what it means to sort of counsel LGBTQ folks on the issues that all of us go through, uh, but in particular people in that community? How did it change what you were able to, you know, how, how you approach these, these, these kinds of sessions? Well, I, you know, I have to tell you not a lot really, because I'm keenly aware that if you are LGBT, then you, um, probably have some sort of, you probably are, you have some sort of trauma, Mm. um, you know, some sort of PTSD because, you know, a lot of us have felt marginalized in some way and that's had a psychological impact, especially for, you know, those of us who have been, were marginalized as, as young people, as children, um, because that really, you know, creates indelible imprints in the brain and affects how we view things throughout our whole life. I mean, you know, one of the conversations that I have often in, you know, in my therapy sessions is that, you know, I'm back in seventh grade, (laughs) you know, that I'm I'm struggling with issues about my, about my, um, you know, my worthiness and, you know, whether I'm a good person or, you know, stuff like that. And it's, it all take, it all goes back to seventh grade, you know, when I was being pushed around by the kids and, you know, and, and, and treated really horribly, um, that those leave indelible imprints. A lot of us in our community have been, um, 
you know, traumatized by others, not only just like the emotional abuse that I endured, but, you know, there's a higher level of, of sexual abuse of us when we were younger, um, physical and emotional abuse, um, you know, and so, and then also just feeling rejected by society and marginalized, you know, that's, that has a pervasive psychological impact. And so we go through life um, compromised in some ways, and, and oftentimes in ways that we don't actually really even know. Um, or consciously acknowledge. Um, and then especially if we have the intersection of being, you know, LGBTQ and then being from um, a racial or ethnic group, which is also, you know, um, discriminated against in our country. So all of that. So for me, it hasn't really changed a whole lot because what happens is that when we are sitting down with someone and we're trying to start to process, you know, their own personal relationship with what happened at Pulse, we start to unpack layers and layers and layers of trauma. Yeah. And, um, so I've done trauma work all, all, all my career. And so for me, it's, it's, it's not really anything new. It's just, it just adds a different layer to the work. And I, this links in sort of to another topic that's brought up in relation to trauma and particularly in relation to Pulse, which is this concept of vicarious trauma. So first, before we talk about that, maybe you could explain what vicarious trauma is. So vicarious trauma is when you have an emotional reaction to something that you didn't personally experience firsthand. So the best way to describe this situation is, you know, there were, um, there were 49 people murdered in the club that night. There were 53 people injured and there was expected to be, there was estimated to be about another 250 or so people in the club who escaped without physical injuries. Um, and, but you know, have varying degrees of uh, emotional difficulty because of what they witnessed or experienced. So roughly a little bit over 300 people. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we have, you know, a lot of people in our community, like say, for instance, so someone like me, now I'm int- I've been intimately involved in this work because of what I do, you know, since day one. Um, but, you know, as a, as a gay person, um, had, you know, I just been you know, a, a guy who works at a bank or something, you know, just having, you know, some other job, um, I still would have been very affected by what happened, even had I not been at Pulse that night. So I've been to Pulse personally many, many, many times. Um, but I'm an old guy now, and I don't go to nightclubs anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my partying usually stops about 6 p.m. And so, I'm, I'm, and plus, my, I'm, an, my, I'm my, not that much, I'm really quite a young person and my partying it stops at 6 p.m as well so please don't feel as if that's a age discrimination thing at all (laughs) (laughs) so you know plus my husband and i have a daughter and so we don't get out much in terms of but i've been to pulse like many many times um you know in my younger days and know the bar very very well um in terms of you know its layout so you know so just being a regular lgbt person um, I can feel very affected by what happened, um, by my, not only by my, my proximity to the event and, and knowing that, you know, if circumstances would have been different for any, I could have been there, um, which is kind of frightening. But also the fact that, you know, from all of our history um, as a community, our safe havens have been bars. Mm. And so you know, a, 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 a shooting and a hate crime like this that happens in our safe haven really strikes to the very core of, of how we feel about ourselves and our safety and um, our sense of belonging and, you know, in the, in the greater mainstream society. So, 
um, you know, and I've told people, you know, as I tell people all the time, it is very likely that, you know, a, an LGBT person who lives in, you know, Seattle or, you know, who lives in the United Kingdom is going to have a lot higher level of, of emotional impact or reaction versus, you know, a, a heterosexual person who lives an hour and a half away yeah. from Pulse or maybe even in the suburbs of Orlando. Um, they won't feel that same kind of connection. Mm. You know, we have roots. The LGBT community, even even if we don't all necessarily get each other or get along, our roots run deep. And so when something happens like that, you know, it affects us worldwide. We all feel the sense of safety being undermined. You've just completely summarized something I've been trying to explain to people in private conversations for a year. And you've encapsulated it so beautifully. It's such a great explanation of why I think because I was in London when I when I heard the news on the television and it I it followed me for weeks afterwards I was so shaken up by it and for a long time I didn't really understand why I was shaken up by it and I thought to myself well golly everybody Fraser you're you safe in England have the least to worry about but it really did kind of begin to undermine how I was feeling about not just this dreadful act of violence, but just being gay in general, and as you mentioned, those kinds of traumas that you everyone is infl- has inflicted upon them growing up LGBTQ, and um, it took until I kind of discovered this concept of vicarious trauma. I didn't. It took it took, it, it took that understanding for me to be able to recognise what was happening to me and what's happened to I think so many of my friends who again have never even been to Orlando, um, but have experienced a similar effect. And yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, I, sorry. sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm just gonna, I was just going to agree with you and just say, you know, because you know, it, 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 there's just an underlying awareness, whether you consciously say, you know, say the words in your head or not. This could happen anywhere. Yeah. And um, you know, and and certainly Orlando is such a LGBT friendly city. I, you know, as I, 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 you know, I am, I do public speaking. I go all around the country, not just about Pulse. I've done it, you know, long before the Pulse happened. And I would tell people all the time, you know, if San Francisco and Fort Lauderdale had a gay love child, it would be downtown Orlando. <laughs> um, because it's a, it's a very, very LGBT and like, and our government is, you know, extremely supportive of our community and very welcoming. And so it, you know, it's, it's, it, it really, I think even more it hits home than, you know, it had it been someplace that's not really seen mm-hmm. as welcoming or friendly, you'd go, oh, well, you know, if it would happen in like rural America or something like that. Sure. And everyone would go, well, you know, we understand because, you know, the, they hate the gays there. But Orlando's so different. And so, again, that's really why it strikes at the heart of so many people worldwide. Even if you've never been to Orlando, I think a lot of people kind of know that we're we're kind of gay here. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> oh, okay. David, I, the next thing I really want to talk about is what you're doing to continue to support these folks still trying to recover from this tragedy. Um, as time rolls on, the media attention wanes inevitably. I'm sure there'll be a peak around the one-year memorial. But what are the things that concerned people who are listening to this can do to help and give you any support you need and your amazing organisation in, in carrying on the work that you do? Well, I mean, obviously we're going to be here for the long haul and we're always, you know, going to be doing what we can to get the word out that we're still here. Um, we just had a series of PSAs developed that were, um, you know, sponsored by a, um, a corporation here um, in Florida 
to and and um, you know help is still out there. Um, they're really great, impactful PSAs. I have pressed the government for the the local government for the need for uh, continuing PSAs to to keep people reminded of the fact that there are still, as as the world turns its attention to other things and seems to move on, that there are still people who you know live and work this. Um, healing and recovery plan every day and are are here and ready and available. And probably, you know, I would not be a bit surprised if, you know, next year we either um, do a whole new PSA campaign or um, something, you know, along those lines to try to continue to get the word out. I'm very, very dedicated to making sure that the people who are impacted, even if, you know, you know, even people through vicarious trauma that were impacted are not forgotten, and that everybody has an opportunity to access healing. Okay. All right. Well, David, I can't thank you enough for coming on today to talk about this topic. And I guess the the wounds that everyone's still carrying around there, even after scars begin to fade. So um, I really cannot tell you, I'm, I'm sure on behalf of everybody listening, I want to say, you know, thank you for the amazing work that you do and continue to do. And your dedication to helping your community heal is, I mean, it's its nothing short of absolutely awe-inspiring. So thank you so much for coming and giving your time at this busy time to come and talk to me. Well, that's very kind, Fraser, And I really appreciate you making the effort to continue to educate our community worldwide um, about, you know, who, you know, how, how we as a community can be affected so that people won't feel weird. You know, they won't have that, those strange feelings about, well, why should I be worried about this? Or why should I, you know, feel odd? Um, and let everyone know that however they're feeling is okay. And that's just a natural part of being who we are. So I appreciate you, you know, continuing to get the word out and, and helping to educate people. Oh, it's, of course, it's absolutely my, not my pleasure, but it's my privilege. All right. Thank you so much, David. All right. Thank you. My next guest is Hannah Willard. Hannah is the Public Policy Director for Equality Florida, the state's largest advocacy group for the advancement of LGBTQ rights and protections. She spearheaded the campaign for the state's first non-discrimination legislation for for the protection of LGBTQ residents. She was directly involved in the fight for same-sex marriage in Florida, Sadly, Hannah was also caught up at the Pulse shooting on Orlando exactly one year ago. It was the largest mass shooting event in American history, where 49 people lost their lives. 90% of those killed were members of the queer Latinx community. I'm going to talk to Hannah about how she and her community in Orlando have managed to heal in the wake of such a tragedy, and the amazing work she and the survivors of the attack have done over the past 12 months to stop something like this from ever happening again. Hi. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Oh, I'm so great. Thank you so much for taking the time. Of course. Oh, excellent. Okay, but I know you're really busy, um, so if everything's okay with you, we'll just jump right in. Okay, can you hear me all right? I can hear you perfectly. You are coming through loud and clear. Perfect. All right. Are you all set? Yes. Okay, great. So, Hannah, how are you doing? Um, I know it's been a busy time for you right now, and you are doing so many events and interviews to mark the one-year memorial. Have you had a moment just to stop, take a beat, and reflect on how you're feeling after this year? I think so. It's um, certainly been quite hectic as events have uh, started to pile on and have started to take place. I think one of the hardest things 
is that as organizers and as advocates, we're used to having busy schedules, but these events are of such a heavy nature that it makes it quite unique when it's not just a busy schedule, but it's also events that are emotionally draining in a different way. Of course. And, and I suppose it, you've been involved in advocacy on behalf of the LGBTQ community in Florida for, for so long, um, but I can't imagine dealing with an incident like what happened in Pulse. I mean, surely things have completely changed in terms of the way the community binds together. I, I'm actually, I'm curious to ask you, do you feel like your community has felt more fractured as a result? Did it feel like it came under attack or has it come together in a more unified way in this past year? You know, all LGBTQ people have our own coming out story, right? We yeah. have our own moment where we come out for the first time, or perhaps we have a series of stories where we came out to individual people in our lives. And I watched Orlando have its own coming out moment last year. This was an incredibly significant turning point for the city of Orlando because we are a diverse, large city in the state of Florida. This is my hometown. This is where I grew up. And I've watched Orlando change so much over the last several years. But I think that the Pulse Massacre really called the question. It really forced the residents of Orlando to decide who it is that we want to be as a city and as a community. And I can't tell you how encouraging and inspiring it was to see Orlando come out and come together. There were rainbows all over the city. There was a sense of solidarity and community that I had never experienced before. And I do think it was a really beautiful thing to watch our city proclaim, we are not a place that tolerates discrimination. We are not a place that tolerates violence. But even more than that, we are not a city that tolerates hate of any kind. And watching so many different marginalized communities come together in the wake of Pulse was really powerful. And I suppose it, it's maybe more contextualized by the fact that, you know, Florida has its has its backwards parts, I'm sure, you know, parts where coming out, <laughs> I'm sure you can, I'm, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, but you know, that it must be a coming out for Orlando in Florida, staking its claim as this diverse, vibrant city. I mean, that must have felt, at least for you, very empowering in a state which has traditionally been all over the place in terms of uh, equal rights. Absolutely. Florida is a really strange place in terms of LGBTQ advocacy, because the reality is, is that we have these uh, vibrant urban meccas of diversity and inclusion, lots of big cities and, and communities that understand that when we are diverse, we are stronger. Unfortunately, our state legislature has not caught up to that fact because of gerrymandering and because of, I think, really the most recent election, there's been a a disconnect between what Floridians believe and what Floridians really agree on and what our elected officials are willing to support. For example, a vast majority of Floridians fully support the right of LGBTQ people to live our lives free from discrimination. 73% mm. of Floridians agree that no one should be fired from their job because of who they are or who they love. And yet, this past legislative session, we were unable to get a single hearing 
on a statewide bill that would have provided those very same protections for LGBTQ people throughout Florida. Mm. We had historic support in the legislature. We had almost a a majority of the legislature sign on as co-sponsors of that bill. And Republican leadership blocked the bill from getting even a single hearing in either chamber. So there's a real disconnect. People in Orlando and people across Florida get it. Mm. LGBTQ equality, it's not a partisan issue. This is a human issue. And I'm eager to watch our elected officials catch up. I suppose the question that comes out of that for me is, obviously, you've at Equality Florida, you've been, you know, you spearheaded the campaign for same-sex, uh, sorry, for marriage equality in that state, when that was obviously before the Supreme Court decision came down. Yes. As you've mentioned, you've were actively involved in this non-discrimination bill, and I guarantee will probably continue to be actively involved in pushing for that. Have you felt that in the wake of what happened a year ago, your legislative focus has had to change to tackle something much bigger, like gun control restrictions? You know, the Pulse Massacre really did make it impossible for us to ignore the impact of gun violence on the LGBTQ community. But the reality is, is that gun violence has always been a civil rights issue. Mm. It has always disproportionately impacted LGBTQ people, immigrants, people of color, women. And so we, I think, realized that we had to finally join forces with so many of our partners to say enough is enough. We've got to do more to curb this epidemic of gun violence not just in our state, but across our country. And so I think you're right. The Pulse Massacre forced us to re-examine what it was that we were doing to uproot hatred and bigotry of all kinds. We know that hatred can turn lethal. We watched it happen here in Orlando. But the reality is, is that hatred and bigotry can turn lethal when it's directed against any oppressed person, any marginalized person. And so certainly with the uh, murder rates of transgender women of color Mm -hmm. climbing, with violent acts being perpetrated against Muslim people, against immigrant folks, Mm -hmm. we knew we had to say enough is enough. We must disarm hate. And we also must advocate for common sense gun policy reform that will keep all of our communities safe, Mm -hmm. including the LGBTQ community. Leading in from that, I suppose the next question I have is about how you felt the way the Pulse Massacre was characterised, both at the time and now looking back at it historically. This will be an event which is discussed, I'm sure, for many, many years. Um, I think when I, I remember the reporting on it being very mixed with some people calling this a hate crime, uh, some people calling it a mass shooting, some people calling it an act of terror, and refusing to acknowledge the victims as LGBTQ, or even, LG- and more specifically, L- the Latinx LGBTQ community who were disproportionately, obviously, the victims of this attack. How, right. do, you, how, would you, how do you feel it's best characterised in terms of moving forward on the back of what you're trying to accomplish and you you're you know you're trying to put this in a historical context how would you describe how would you categorize what happened that night there's a lot that we will never know about what was in the heart and on the mind of the shooter that night but what we do know is this was a person who entered an LGBT nightclub in the middle of pride month yeah. on latin night holding a military-style assault rifle 
when the club was at maximum capacity and he opened fire. Mm-hmm. That's all I need to know sure. to sure. move forward in addressing homophobia, transphobia, bigotry against the Latinx community, and to advocate for common sense gun policy. You know, I think that we get mired down in the details and it prevents us from moving forward with a clear vision. When folks reached out to us after the Pulse massacre and asked what it was that they could do, our answer was clear and it has remained consistent. Honor them with action. We have to be willing to take new action to make our world better and safer and more equal for all of us. It's not enough to mourn those we lost. It's certainly not enough to toss around anti-Muslim rhetoric and calling this, you know, an ISIS terrorist attack. Exactly. We have to also be willing to say out loud that homophobia still exists in our state and in our country. And I think that when we do that, we move away from a place of empty rhetoric towards new action that will undoubtedly make our world a better place, regardless of what was on the mind of this one specific person, this one specific night. Mm. Hannah, I've I've talked a lot in your introduction, a little bit about how you've managed to single, well, not single-handedly, but how your organization has managed to, and I don't like using this word because I feel like it it implies some kind of nefarious intent, but has managed to capitalize on the tragedy, has managed to, to take that tragedy, take that outpouring of grief and anger, and turn it into an instrument of political change, which takes work. I mean, it's difficult to keep people's interest after things happen um, and the media attention dies down. So I think my question is, what is it that Equality Florida is most committed to doing to honour that those people with action in the next year, the next two years, the next 10 years? You know, I think that uh, it's interesting that you framed it that way because I think that there has been some resistance to over-politicizing the attack at Pulse. You know, we saw uh, a lot of conversation in the news about this idea of elected officials taking advantage of the Pulse massacre to push a anti-gun agenda. Or we saw, you know, conversation in the media about how elected officials were taking this opportunity to advocate for a pro-gay and therefore anti-family agenda, right? Mm. That's ridiculous. This act was absolutely political because it was a massacre. It was the single largest shooting in American history conducted by a single gunman. Mm -hmm. And it was the largest attack on LGBTQ people in our history and the largest attack on queer people of color. Mm. We have to be willing to acknowledge that the personal is political Mm. and we have to be willing to make the political personal. And that's what Equality Florida does. We are a advocacy organization, and we want to engage the public in that which is both political and personal. So what has focused us over the last year has been that mantra, honor them with action. And for us, one of the things that's become most important has been starting at the school level. We have invested deeply in launching our Safe and Healthy Schools project just two months after the Pulse Massacre, actually, in August of 2016, because we want to prevent bigotry from taking root in our young people's hearts and minds from the very beginning. Mm. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention say that the two factors that contribute the most to an LGBTQ young person's well-being are family acceptance and a supportive school environment. 
Okay. And we absolutely cannot ensure that every single young person has an accepting family, but you better believe we can make sure that all of our schools are safe and affirming places for our LGBTQ young people. We can do that. And we have to do that. We need to make sure that kids are able to find solace in places where they spend so much of their time and in places where they're looking to their peers, but they're also looking to adults as mentors. And we have to ensure that they're receiving positive, encouraging, and affirming messages at school. I think one of the things I really want to talk to you about right now, you mentioned it just a second ago, we live in a very disparate political time. Um, and a place like Florida, it's more obvious than in a lot of states. Uh, you know, I grew up in California, so it feels like even though there's some disparity there, it's not like what, what goes on in Florida. Um, do you feel then that your role, because this was an attack on the LGBT, not only the LGBTQ community, but the LGBT community of colour, and particularly the Latinx community, um, do you feel as though your mandate has expanded to not only providing a safe environment for LGBTQ kids, but for kids of undocumented immigrants in school? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and how do you bridge? I mean, there's so many things, there's so many battles that need fighting, and I recognise you guys only have limited resources, but how do you translate all of this kind of generated um, will into a protective environment on a number of issues that all of which could affect the LGBTQ community in different ways? Absolutely. The reality is, is that LGBTQ people, we are immigrants. We are people of color. Exactly. We are women. We are people with disabilities. You know, we are people with a whole range of socioeconomic statuses. So certainly we have to be willing to think about the issues that impact LGBTQ people with a 360 degree view. Mm-hmm. And this past year, you're absolutely right. We had to widen the scope of our work to make sure that we were including and uplifting the people at the margins, that we were uplifting and engaging and actively protecting people that are the most marginalized in our society, many of whom have multiple layers of oppressed identities, Mm -hmm. like an undocumented immigration status or uh, mental health issues or um, you know, being transgender, or there's so many, there's so many ways in which we need to be looking at fighting for full equality for all of us, inclusive justice. And I think that one of the stories that I love telling most about what happened after Pulse was that at a moment when some sought to meet hate with hate and fear with fear, we saw Orlando reject that. We saw Orlando instead come together and reject anti-Muslim sentiment and Islamophobia. We absolutely worked hand in hand with the Muslim community and with the Arab American community here in Orlando to say, we are not going to now scapegoat the Muslim community and we're going to stand together to uproot hatred and bigotry of all kinds. This past year, our legislative slate, the, the, work, the work that we did in the Florida legislature, was our most intersectional and diverse slate ever. Mm. We are unapologetically pro-reproductive justice. We are unapologetic supporters of a woman's right to access safe and legal abortion, period, no matter what. We are also unapologetic supporters 
of the rights of immigrants to enjoy the full host of, you know, the, the full American dream here. And also, we absolutely are speaking out against gun violence that impacts the most marginalized among us. So you're right, Fraser. It's incredibly important that we talk about LGBTQ equality, not just in a silo, not just where we're focused just on the needs of this one community, but realizing that LGBTQ people also have a whole host of other identities that impact our work. Absolutely. Okay. And then the next thing I really wanted to talk to you a little bit about, Hannah, is obviously Equality Florida sort of gained national attention as a result of the GoFundMe page that was set up in support of the victims, their families, and anyone who's been truly impacted by what happened in the, at Pulse that night. I think I'm right in saying that you set the all-time record on GoFundMe, raising more than $9 million in online donations, but in total, about $29 million for those affected by the tragedy. Um, I suppose, I'm curious, how has that money been received? What's it gone to do? If you could, if you can speak to any of that, I'm sure people would be curious to see uh, what their donations have helped to achieve over the past year. Absolutely, it was incredible watching the donations pour in that morning, June 12th, that Sunday morning. We didn't know a lot; we didn't have a lot of details yet, but we knew a couple of things for sure. The first was that survivors were already fighting for their lives in the hospital, and were going to need our support. Victims' family members were about to face unthinkable challenges, mm -hmm. both emotional and logistical. So we knew that they were going to need financial help. What we also knew was that people were going to want to know how they could help. We were being inundated already with requests from around the world saying, what can we do? How can we support the victims? How can we support the survivors? So that was really what spearheaded the GoFundMe campaign. We set it up thinking, okay, at least we'll be able to point folks somewhere, right? As details pour in, as more details emerge, we want to be able to have this place where we can direct people. And we set a very modest goal of $100,000. <laughs> we thought, okay, this would be amazing. If we can raise $100,000, that would be incredible. <sighs> Within a couple hours, we had raised our goal to $250,000, right. then $500,000, then a million. In a couple of days, we had already broken $2 million. It was incredible watching the folks respond with such generosity. We ended up having donations from over 120,000 people across the globe. And this was high dollar donations from corporations. This was uh, high school students setting up bake, scale, bake sales and donating, you know, $20, $50. It was really moving. Mm -hmm. And what we decided to do was work with the One Orlando Fund, which was the money that the city of Orlando was raising, to make sure that there was one claims process and one disbursement process so that every single penny, every single dollar that was raised went to those that were most directly impacted, so the survivors and the family members of the victims. And that disbursement process has taken place. That money has gone into the hands of those who needed it the most. And uh, we're proud to have been part of that process because we know that people around the world just wanted to feel as though they were making some sort of contribution. And it's, it's important that we were there for the survivors and family members to provide those tangible resources, both in the immediate aftermath, and then also make sure that we were good stewards of the donations that we received and made sure that it went to those that were affected. 
I suppose the follow-on question from, from from that, Hannah, is do you feel as though that ultimate goal to support the survivors and the families of the victims has been achieved in terms of financial reward, um, financial donations? Do you think that the the amount that was raised will be sufficient to cover even long-term, perhaps, mental health care? Is it still worth trying to raise money for that particular fund? You know, I think uh, money is never going to replace those that we lost. Of course not. Money is certainly never going to uh, heal the scars of PTSD for so many of the survivors. You know, the mental health funding piece is a really uh, important piece of the puzzle that has still not been fully addressed. Mm. Florida ranks dead last in the country in mental health funding. Mm. We spend the fewest dollars per capita of any state in the country on mental health care. And so here in Orlando, we have felt we have we have borne the brunt of that because of the attack at Pulse. There's been a number of organizations and entities that have stepped up to try to meet those needs. But I certainly think that mental health care is an ongoing issue, an ongoing challenge for not just the 53 people who sustained physical injuries or the family members of the 49 victims, but also people in our community, local advocates like me and my colleagues, but also just folks living in Orlando who absolutely experienced the community trauma of, of the Pulse Massacre. And so, you know, we, we've been uh, eagerly uh, awaiting some action on that front from our state legislature. The state legislature did not allocate nearly enough money to address the mental health crisis happening here in Orlando, but we'll continue to be pushing the government to do so. I had an interesting conversation um, and he will be appearing sort of before you on the podcast with uh, Dr. David Baker Hargrove. Um, yes. Yeah, so we talked a lot about the mental health issues and the challenges his organizations faced and what he had to do to essentially grow from a small operation into this, you know, major sort of source of support because he was stepping in to fill a void that you've very clearly pointed out exists and hasn't been filled yet by, um, quote unquote, the public authorities. Um, I guess, I guess the question I'm asking really in a roundabout sort of way is what can we do? People are obviously going to be interested in remembering what happened a year ago around this time. It's going to come back up in the news. I think it's going to be more up among most. It's going to be in the minds of a lot of people, particularly around Pride Month especially. So what can we do either financially or otherwise, do you think, to support the victims, to honour them with action, to support you and the work that you're doing, um, to assist you in achieving the legislative... <laughs> in winning the legislative battles you have coming up? I, I, I suppose... I'm asking on behalf of everybody listening who's concerned and wants to help, what do you think the best way they could do that is? I'm so glad you asked because (laughs) I would really encourage every single one of your listeners to go to Mm honorthemwithaction.org and that is where you can find the answers to those questions, I hope. We're encouraging folks to join us in our campaign to honor them with action. There's opportunities for individuals to contact their legislators, to volunteer at their local LGBTQ community centers, uh, to contact their school board and make sure that their schools are safe places for LGBTQ youth. We're encouraging people to share on social media using the hashtag 
honor them with action, about how they are taking some form of action to honor those that were taken from us. You know, I think that when we look at all the ways in which our world is different one year later, we do need to be willing to put our time and energy into supporting the kinds of organizations that are doing this work. So certainly supporting organizations like Equality Texas, Equality North Carolina, Equality Florida, you know, Mm. the ones that are really on the front lines in the state legislatures, protecting the rights of LGBTQ people and pushing new policies forward. But I also think our local LGBTQ community centers and PFLAG chapters need volunteers. They need support too. And so I would encourage every single one of your listeners to go to honorthemwithaction.org and find out more information about how you can take action in your local community. Hannah, it's been such an honor and a privilege to chat to you today. And I really can't, I, I know I speak for everyone listening when I say thank you so much for really leading the fight and continuing the work and making sure that the world is just a little bit better than it was a year ago and hopefully working to prevent um, anything like this from ever happening again. I know I speak for everyone and I say we really appreciate it and we're all very inspired by the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me and thank you for asking how you can honour them with action. We Uh, need you. Absolutely. Okay, everyone, so that's it for this episode. Um, I'd like to just finish by taking a brief moment's silence to remember the 49 people who lost their lives that night. Okay, thank you so much. As ever, this has been Fraser Muir. You're listening to Going Gay, A Beginner's Guide. And you can follow me on Instagram. You can write me a message at www.politicalbarrister.com forward slash contact. I'm going to put all the links to the relevant campaigns we heard about from Hannah and David today in the description. Um, I'm also going to link to my Patreon page. If you feel like becoming a patron, you'll get uh, an extra special shout-out. That honour this week goes to Maddie Sexton. Thank you so much, Maddie, for becoming a patron. Really appreciate it. Um, But generally speaking, I just wanted to say thank you all so much for listening and continuing to support me and... I especially wanted to wish you all a very happy Pride. Listening to people like Hannah and David and reliving what happened in the past year, it seems more important now than ever that we celebrate ourselves and we celebrate our community as much as we possibly can. All right, love to you all. See you next time. Just feel my pulse Feel my pulse Can't you see that I'm scarred? I'm just the same as you are So just feel my pulse